I hope that was more or less clear. Uh, transport, um, it's difficult to explain on this in short time. That's why I recommend to buy the book, because, <laughs> because I, I hope I'm, I'm much clearer in the book uh, than I'm, I'm, I'm probably here. Um, transport, I do believe, is probably today makes up about three-quarter of what you could call urbanism. And um, Euralil is a very good and early, let's say, early contemporary example of that logic. So master plant by OMA, uh, Rem Kohlhaas. I think probably of, of many of you will have heard about it. Uh, what I find really interesting is um, how urban planning relates to the economy of a city. I believe if you're in a place like Paris or London, that's where I have most of my experience from, in cities which have been rich for a very long time, Sometimes you're always only thinking about further growth because the economical base is already there. So you don't really think about how urban development and the actual economy of a city are linked together and you know, how they influence each other. If you take here Lille, Lille was a city uh, which at that time of the project was already in fairly bad economic conditions, right? It was a rich city um, in, you know, up to the mid-19th century, probably something like that, maybe even a bit longer. I think through textile industries, partly steel, I'm not even sure of that, but, you know, industries which tended to all over Western Europe uh, and Eastern Europe just to, to, to go down and down in terms of, um, of, 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 of wealth produced for the city. So Lille was a city with high unemployment and here, the signature of the contract for the uh, Eurostar was really the starting point of a project which really, you know, is based on some kind of hope which only partly has, you know, been implemented in reality. But the hope was really, and I think Rem Kohlhaas has written a lot of that and probably also when he was chosen as a master planner insisted on that point, I think he was able to make the city fathers dream about these opportunities. You may, might have seen the diagrams where it's showing Lille and you know, the, enormous, uh, new, the enormous amount of this 50 million people that you could now actually reach in just kind of a two-hour train ride. So Lille was presented as being a new international hub. Right? Before that, it was just essentially a, a, a mid-sized, if at all, mid-sized city in northern France, slightly depressed northern France. And, and um, so this project was very much taken as an opportunity to, to build up a new quarter uh, in actually an area which was part of the glacis, you know, the, the area around the former uh, uh, city walls used only by a motorway. The project is highly complex, very, very complicated. It, it took actually a lot of um, I think the city had to pay, uh, if I'm not mistaken, um, over 200 million just to make this view possible. Because you know the, the SNCF, the rail, um, railway company, would have prefer, preferred actually just to build a tunnel, and you know if possible even to build a station outside of the city centre. So it was the mayor Pierre Morois, the mayor of Lille, who put all his political weight. And, and organized a lot of money in order to convince the railway station to actually, first of all, to build the station in Lille because Amiens was one of the competitors for that station and also to build it in the city center and to um, have the station actually coming out of the, um, 
the Earth in order to have uh, a view on the outside and in order to make, you know, that's the view actually from the other side, in order to have an impact on this new urban square in front of it. And, you know, you have different, again, unfortunately, um, the development of Uhalil came together with a pretty severe real estate crisis in, in France at the end of the 18, uh, um, uh, 1980s. And, you know, you can see here some early sketches of Ram Kohlhaas. And the idea was to have six, seven, eight of those towers above the station. In reality, there were only two built. And um, so the, the project was struggling enormously economically. This is by Porzon Park. Um, this is by Claude Vasconi. And uh, it took a lot of time to, for this project to really gather momentum. And uh, there are two extension phases. The, the program has changed a lot. So there's far less office space than intended initially, but there's more residential space. Um, the, the, the project now is considered to be successful, but I think it took the population over 20 years to actually uh, um, appreciate some of the qualities. And it has not only to do with the time that has passed, it has also to do with the fact that the project, the initial project of OMA has quite considerably been uh, uh, modified. So there was much more in, you know, importance given also to green spaces. Um, you can see here that this is some of the architecture which was planned right from the beginning. This is a shopping center plant uh, built by Jean Nouvel. This is Kohlhaas himself who built this uh, exhibition hall. That's the interior of the shopping mall. And, and you can see here again you know, the, the different uh, layers of analysis. Many green spaces, I think that's what today, um, I forgot the name, but many famous, Duncan Lewis has done one of those parks, um, Gilles Clément. Um, so, you know, the, the, the urban, the public spaces and the green spaces here have been implemented with a lot of care and with some, some fantastic um, um, examples. So you can see here, uh, quite interesting, you know, to see the, the figure ground of those principles drawn by, uh, by OMA. I mean, I think the critics consider this kind of urbanism somehow to be reminiscent of, uh, an, how to say, an apotheosis of transport uh, of coming from the 70s. So in that case, it's actually not done for the car, but it's done for the train. I think that's how critics uh, um, see you know, this master plan, but, but I believe that there are um, some strong qualities also which can be uh, perceived today. And that's one of the extension areas which is not master planned anymore by OMA, but actually by um, another French architect. I think Dussapin Leclerc are um, here the, the master planners of, of, um, of, of this new residential area which has a quite interesting section. Um, <coughs> and here that's, that's one of the early spaces here of exchange, transport exchange. So this goes you know, towards this idea of the transport uh, apotheosis, uh, um, which was very much at the center of OMA's um, ideas. Um, let's take one, I think that's the only South American example in the book. It's Puerto Madero in, in Buenos Aires. Uh, many other projects and some that I've already um, presented are obviously linked to the whole topic of brownfield development. Right? Uh, it's like areas which can't be used anymore for the industries they had been built for and are now converted uh, often because they are in city uh, location and which makes them very valuable. So something similar happened here in, uh, in Buenos Aires. Um, and you can see, just to show you the setting, 
So that's the Casa, I think Casa Rosada is the name, so it's, it's positioned at the end of a major axis in Buenos Aires, so right in the city center. So, but however, the aerial here is slightly, uh, is giving you a, a wrong idea if you don't know Puerto Madero. Some things which should not be forgotten is actually that there's a huge traffic arteria here along the, the river or the docks, and the fact that there's um, a height difference, right, between the city center and Puerto Madero. It means like to a certain extent Puerto Madero is, is right next to the city, but on the other hand it's completely cut off. And actually Buenos Aires, as many other uh, coastal cities, um, most coastal cities I would say, is very much turning its back to the water because you know the water in history was uh, rather dangerous so people maybe used it for, for, you know, for, for shipping, for fishing, and you know the industries uh, once the industrial industrial started, but you know many of those cities, and the same is the case of Barcelona, uh, um, you know essentially have reinvented their relation to the sea quite recently. And 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 uh, Buenos Aires actually in Buenos Aires is quite difficult to find a place where you can look on the sea or rather the Rio de la Plata because that's you know still the river but going towards towards the sea, and and Puerto Madero today actually takes a lot of uh, pride and success from the fact that it's actually not using the sea because of this reserve, natural reserve sitting in front of it, but using you know, the former docks as you know, the center of, of, of the development, uh, um, a quality which you cannot find anywhere else in, uh, in Buenos Aires. The history here, just in two words, it's quite, it's quite interesting and somehow frustrating. I believe that the discussion about what kind of port concept to build in the second part, the end of the 19th century, so the discussion between two major concepts and the construction, uh, yeah, took, I think, longer than the time period in which the docks could be used efficiently, because once the docks were finished, the, the sizes of the, the boats were so quickly uh, being raised that actually the docks were hardly used anymore. So it's a quite a, a financially quite a fa um, sad story here for the city, which invested a fortune and very quickly actually had to build a new port, uh, um, you know, a bit further down. And 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 the project here started probably somewhere in the 80s. Um, again, I, I don't have the time. That there's the, the process is quite interesting. There was um, a, a public development company was founded. At the beginning, the city thought about. Uh, selling all, 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 all together. I think Trump was one of the persons being interested, actually. But then afterwards, uh, it was decided not to do that, but rather to do everything in a longer process and in a smaller process. So the uh, public development company was founded, but it didn't have its own budget. So at the beginning, they were actually living from you know, renting out parking, renting out other industrial spaces. But they started, actually, with the... Um, Re with the redevelopment of, of those buildings here along the, uh, along the dock, so that's, those are these here, just in order to, to test the development strategy in order to get some money that they could use in order afterwards you know, to implement the infrastructure. Um, so much more to say. Foster actually is just building here several projects. I think one of them is finished, another one in construction. So many famous architects. Uh, have been, this has been renovated for Faena uh, uh, by Philip Stark, this hotel, and uh, many towers, one of them by Cesar Pelli, being built. 
Unfortunately, the high-rise part, again, coming back of all these issues of sometimes, you know, the high-rise uh, um, typology not being used in the best way, specifically in the ground floor. So um, the, the ten, there's a tendency for, you know, a kind of gated community uh, a type of development, obviously quite typical for many developments in, in, in South America. But there are also, you know, many qualities here that have been implemented. Uh, if you compare what is done elsewhere in, in, in South America, this, this project definitely has qualities. We, we, I would like to finish here with um, an example from the Middle East, uh, downtown Dubai, um, which again is quite specific in terms of land ownership. Uh, it wasn't possible for us to find the plants. We just found out that actually uh, most of this site previously were barracks, again, army barracks, and afterwards they were uh, bought on a leasehold base uh, as all the land in, in Dubai is, you know, from the Sheikh's family uh, by Imar, which is one of the biggest uh, developers, which obviously I think the, the Sheikh's family has also a share in. So, you know, it's quite difficult in those countries to, you know, to know exactly what's private and what's public. But we somehow still try to choose some, some colors here. You know, saying what's, you know, slightly more private, slightly more public. And, and, you know, just to finish with Dubai in general, rather than to talk too much about uh, downtown Dubai, what's quite specific about the development of Dubai is, first of all, to make freehold uh, um, sales possible, because historically it was not possible, because all the land um, belonged to, to the Sheikh's family. Um, so that's something which is quite recent, and Imar, this developer, was one of the first ones actually to use the, the opportunity. So that's actually how Dubai could become this you know, enormously growing place. It's because in an area of enormous wealth, but also enormous political uncertainty, uh, you actually had the opportunity to invest in real estate in a fairly safe place. And you know, obviously, you need a freehold system somehow to make that happen. And, and, and that's one of the reasons of, of you know, this, this enormously fast development in Dubai. The second reason, and, and I would like to end with that, is a certain, what you might have realized in, in Dubai is this kind of leapfrog nature of urban development and the city growing so quickly. Well, one of the reasons, again, has to do uh, with economical uh, um, facts is, is actually that uh, when Port Rashid was built far south of the historic center, it was built as a free zone, right? So the city wanted to attract development. And to do that for a port, I think it's something which is done quite often, right? It's not an exception. However, what has done more in a more extreme case than in other places in Dubai, afterwards copied in other uh, of the Emirates, is actually to create free zones for all kinds of different industries. So there are technology, techno um, telecommunications free zones. And it's one of the reasons why there is this separ spatial separation. Because those free zones have essentially been, um, ha have been founded uh, completely separately from the historic city center. And that, that's why Dubai is what it is today. And I think it would be quite interesting. It's easy to to, uh, um, um, to criticize this, this, this kind of type of development. But on the other hand, to be fair enough, I, I don't know if we would have done much better uh, if we were in the same type of, of, of history 
um, as uh, those Emirates are. And it will be quite exciting to realize how Dubai, if it continues to grow, will for more and more be able to make connections to the outside. Essentially now what you can see here, there's a ring road you know, connecting the Dubai Mall with the Burj Khalifa and all those towers. Uh, with just one perpendicular to Sheikh Zayed Road, you know, which is the major m urban motorway of, of, of Dubai. And uh, you know, I think in the future, there will be quite interesting projects of you know, cross-connections going on, and that's already the case. Um, so that's, that's quite fascinating, uh, the opportunities, also through the, you know, the metro line, which has been opened, I think, <coughs> three years ago, and I think there's several ones in construction. So here again, it's also another point, um, don't get me wrong, I mean, I, I am quite critical about some things which have been built in Dubai, but I'm also quite impressed how quickly the architectural sophistication has been raised in, 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 in short time. So, you know, now we start to have not only high-rise, but some lower-rise developments, which try to get some ideas of, you know, the, the more, you know, traditional building types existing in those areas. And, uh, um, so it was very interesting to go several times there. Here again, just um, talking about the figure um, that, that I mentioned before, that's the timeline. So as you can see here, Belgravia, as I mentioned, was, is the oldest example. Then you have Avenue de l'Opéra, uh, you know, from the 1870s, Safati Park being just after that, then Spangen, by the way. I was talking about um, um, the Berlage projects in Amsterdam. Uh, again, Spangen in Rotterdam would be one of the very earliest, if not the earliest example of large-scale social housing in the Netherlands and actually in Europe as such, so quite interesting. Uh, and, and you see here the majority of the projects of the book uh, are you know, recent or still ongoing. And you see here again uh, different density comparisons. We don't really have the time to go into into those tables, but we were just trying to, to get a grip of you know, how dense are those areas, how, how big is the, the, the whole development, how long did it take to develop, and we, you know, we compared. Coming back to a more formal approach, what's actually the build result of all that? So again, we have all the figure grounds here you know, from you know, the, the, the most traditional. Again, it's actually a long history to discuss how traditional those, you know, this late 19th century Parisian urbanism is, and then, you know, something very different here, OMA in Lille, and, you know, many others as a part of La Défense, quite fascinating here. One of the few examples of postmodern urbanism, not only postmodern architecture, but urbanism, is actually the area of Antigone by Ricardo Beaufil uh, in Montpellier, quite successful, by the way, uh, kind of a special type of architectural choice, but uh, interesting, and here you see, you know, other examples. And here again, um, we put all the 20 projects at the same scale on a double page, and you get an idea of how big those projects actually are. Right? Again, this is very difficult to find that information and to understand that you know, the development logic of Broadgate here is not going to be the same as downtown Dubai or um, you know, the Beijing CBD. Um, but again, you could criticize downtown Dubai in the sense that actually having a fairly simple setup of one single owner uh, essentially building all the uh, constructions himself. Um, so that's it. I think I was yeah, just 10 minutes longer than prepared, so uh, not too bad. Thank you very much for your patience.
Thank you.